Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's operating dangerous prehistoric weaponry in a recording studio? My, me! I'm Robert <laughs> Evans, host of Behind the Bastards, a uh, podcast bad people talk about. Here with my friends, Sophie and Sophia. How, how you doing, <laughs> Sophia? That was the worst opening of all time. You think that was the worst? I really do. That you, worse you should than go back to Lansing, some previous episodes. There's been worse. <laughs> well, I opened it that way because one of my wonderful fans uh, sent me a, a sling, like a shepherd sling, which yep. is like a, a one of the deadliest weapons of the ancient era, but modified to throw bagels. It's got a huge David and Goliath vibe. It does. It's exactly that kind of sling, except for it throws bagels. And I've got a very moldy bagel in there because I know. we don't change you the bagels. Me. I know. You you look horrified. I am. I I'm very <laughs> touched by this gift. And the one thing he said on the note card that vaguely explained how to operate it was do not use it inside. So I'm going to immediately do that. You already did immediately do that. Yeah, you but, tried to use it in a kitchen. But not <laughs> not in the tiny confines of the oh. recording studio. So I'm just I'm just gonna do it. Yeah! You're so fucking lucky the smoldy bagel didn't touch the almond butter I've been squeezing in my mouth. It did knock the soundproofing off the wall slightly. <laughs> Sophie's, Sophie's happy. so mad. Sophie, you knew as soon as I got that in the mail, I was going to have to throw it in the room where it would do damage. This to me. She's now you've taken it away. It. That's the only way this was going to go. <laughs> you did it. It's over. How are you doing today, Sophia? I'm great. How are you, Robert? I'm doing fantastic. I got to throw a bagel. Uh, it That's with damage. quotation marks about it because yeah. you didn't really. It it did not work. It hit with some force. It, it did. My goal is always to do damage to the room, and it did damage to the room. Sophie's shooting daggers at you. 
with her beautiful big eyes. I'm slowly sipping a coffee. (laughs) Making eye contact the whole time. (laughs) Sophie, this is what the fans love. It's not the well-researched the essays. It's, That's fine. Anderson it's wasn't harmed. We can continue. Yeah, Anderson's fine. Sophia. Yes. What do you know about Jerry Falwell? I mean, nothing great <laughs> is probably the answer. You are not going to learn. Nothing good. I'm just excited to not be here for an, another baby murder-themed episode. This is not baby murder-themed. If if you've heard me on this podcast before, you know that Robert delights in torturing me with yep. only the most innocent deaths. No, you know, Sophia, it's it's that most people aren't tough enough to handle the baby murder episodes. I feel but, like that's what an abusive dad says when he like hits you with his belt. He's like, no, just, you make your character better. It's for your character. What if, is it abuse if it's accidental and just based purely on like uh, uh, irresponsibility and recklessness? Yes. Okay, well, fair. Like, what if your dad just doesn't make you buckle up? I don't know, dude. Because it's more fun to not be buckled up. (laughs) This is purely (laughs) hypothetical for me. Yeah, yeah, well. Jerry Falwell was kind of America's dad. Aw. And his career, I'll say this, it's the opposite of killing babies. (laughs) Yes, that is... True, I guess. Kind of. I mean, he would say it's the opposite of killing babies. I would say it's stripping people of their reproductive health uh, in the interest of clumps of cells. But there's a disagreement on that at a fundamental level, which is why America's sliding towards a precipice of... You want to talk about Jerry Falwell? Let's let's, let's do it. Okay, let's just get into this. According to some bullshit scrap of paper called The Constitution, religion and politics are supposed to be separate things in this country. In fact, churches can technically lose their tax-exempt status if they're seen to advocate for a specific party or candidate too strongly. Oddly enough, that never seems to happen, and a few million Christian fundamentalists have succeeded in holding large chunks of our national discourse hostage for decades now. How did this happen? Do tell. Well, it wasn't always this way, Sophia. It, was, it used to not be normal for religion and politics to be as directly a thing as they are today. And the answer to how things got where they are starts with a fella named Jerry Falwell. Today, he is thankfully a dead person, but once upon a time, he was alive, and he fucked up a truly shocking amount of things for the rest of us. So that's what this story is. This is the tale of how all of the different chunks of American Christianity, at least the unreasonable chunks of American Christianity, got together to really limit the rights of women uh, and gay people. That's, that's, that's the story of Jerry Falwell. I feel like you hate me because you're like, oh, let's invite a bisexual woman to talk about. I, I want to <laughs> invite the person who's going to be angriest about what we talk about today. Hey, fair enough. Yeah, I, get, I, I got pissed off writing it. Like, it was not a good time. Jerry Lamont Falwell was born on August 11th, 1933. That's a dope middle name. Why are we not focusing on that? Lamont. It mm-hmm. is a cool middle name, yeah. He had a twin brother named Gene uh, who was born roughly at the same time. But Gene was boring, and we're not going to talk about him today. What about his sister, Lulu Lemon? <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Wouldn't it be weird if that was the, the, the reality of the situation? That, like, there was a, the, the same family gave us the religious right and Lulu Lemon yoga pants? I mean, it's all evil, so. It is all evil. Yeah. Very overpriced yoga pants. <clears throat> 
<laughs> Gene and Jerry were born in Lynchburg, Virginia, a town named for the man who invented lynching. Fortunately, he invented oh lynching for God. the purpose. Well, okay, but it's not actually a sad story. He invented lynching to do it to British people, so it's not racist. Yeah, I guess. It's f- I'm fine with lynching British people. Way to alienate our British audience. Oh, they know what they did, Sophie. We've done so many episodes on British people. Hey, British fans, <laughs> I don't feel the same. <laughs> Me too. B- big Anglophile. Uh, God damn it. It took this you so long to I get left. the name right. See? I know. Prince Harry's hot. Continue. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't. you know what's not hot? The British Empire and the millions of people it killed. Sure. Right, continue. No empires are such good. A Debbie Downer. I know, and that's what lynching was invented. It was it was invented to lynch colonial overlords. So uh, it, I'm just saying, lynching turned into something problematic, but it started from a good place—a desire <laughs> to hang colonial oppressors by their thumbs. That was also the original lynching. I can't wait that, to see the t-shirts. This is going to inspire. Yeah, I don't know how lynching I lynching gets subject. a bad rap. <laughs> Robert Evans, Robert Evans. <laughs> weighs in to defend lynching. <laughs> Seriously, you're making headlines right now that no one needs. Yeah, I, I am always trying to be canceled, which is why I recklessly throw moldy bagels uh, in a room. Well, Miles and I mm-hmm. have invented Cancelvania, and he lives there frequently. You can be his roommate. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jerry Falwell's father, Carrie Falwell, which is... Frustrating to me. Frustrating to write. Uh, Carrie and Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Carrie Falwell was an incredibly successful businessman. He broke away from his family's history of being poor farmers to start a grocery store in 1915 at the age of 22. By 1921, he'd done well enough to start opening a series of service stations around Lynchburg to provide fuel for the growing automotist community. Carrie's main innovation was to add a small store or restaurant to each of his stations. This idea proved popular enough that he eventually opened 17 stores in the Lynchburg area. So he invented that? Yeah, I think I think he was like one. Like if a he, gas I think a, station 7-Eleven type thing he, he invented? one of the guys. Like, I think a few people hit upon the idea like, ah, oh, we're selling gas. We might as well sell some fucking Other Slurpees. Shit. Yeah, yeah. But he's like one of the one of the pioneers of the gas station market industry. That's pretty rad. Pretty rad. He's a he's a cool dude. He's a good guy, right? All the right? Other That's where this is going. <laughs> You're going to like him more than than Jerry. I mean, that's not hard. Yeah, that's not hard. He was an objectively better person, um, although still pretty terrible. Uh, Yeah, so Kerry's success in the fuel business led to him starting a new company, distributing oil and gas to 16 counties in Virginia. Jerry Falwell's best biographer, Michael Sean Winters, describes uh, Jerry's upbringing as affluent. I prefer the term rich as hell. Jerry grew up with no financial worries of any kind, but that does not mean his childhood was easy. See, Kerry Falwell was great at business, but the rest of his life was kind of a train wreck. For one thing, he was not the kind of dude who could keep on the straight and narrow. He opened a hotel and a dance hall, which led him to sponsoring cockfights and dogfights in a variety of venues. This was illegal at the time. These were not, you know, respectable cockfights. These were okay. This is the things you're going down for in this episode. You're dying on the hill of lynching and cockfights. Well, I'm not dying. I'm just saying it was an illegal. No, cock there's fight. a subterranean level to Cancelvania. It's like underneath <laughs> regular Cancelvania, and it smells a lot there. Yeah, it's it's so it's welcome. Probably worse than a cockfight smells. It's just. Are we just gonna ignore the dogfight part of this story? What the fuck? It's fucked up. I'm saying it's bad. I'm just I'm also, saying he's dying on the hill. Robert, of, apologize to Anderson. <laughs> I am sorry, Anderson. I just right. wanted to make it clear, like Virginia in 19 teens, anything could be legal. 
I just wanted to make it clear that even even among in that, like these these were not these were not legitimate dog fights. Again, <laughs> the fact that you keep separating it, it's like people who say, uh, "What is it?" They're like, "Oh yeah, uh, there's consensual sex and non-consensual sex." No non-consensual sex is rape <laughs> i feel like yeah. you're doing a real similar job over there <laughs> well i just i assume there were legal dog fights in virginia as well the good kind right is not that the what good you're trying kind. To say? all dog fighting is bad oh i'm glad it took you but i i suspect i'm just saying these were particularly bad dog fights <laughs> Just Again, like the original lynchings at Lynchburg. Were... I can't even get out of here. You dog lyncher. If you split hairs enough, eventually you split an atom that blows up your career. That's a beautiful saying. Thank you. So, uh, Kerry Falwell got into the bootlegging business after getting into the dog fighting business. Uh, his partner in bootlegging was his brother, Garland. Uh, they would use the trucks for their oil and Garland. gas business to deliver liquor to all of his sundry stores. So, that's how they would hide the liquors in the gas trucks, which I'm sure made it taste great. Uh, these illegal venues were incredibly profitable, and in 1927, Kerry Falwell started another legitimate business, the first bus company with routes between Lynchburg and Washington, D.C. So that's good. <laughs> Just uh, bringing lynching to other places, pretty cool. As long as it's the kind of thumb lynching that's not racist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carrie was too rich and too smart to get caught breaking the law constantly, but everyone in town knew that he was the shadiest motherfucker in the city. Uh, this meant that the Falwells were ostracized from high society. So they were rich, but they weren't allowed to hang out with the other rich folks. That sounds cool as hell. That does sound like the best kind of rich to be. Right? Yeah. You don't want to hang out with the other losers. You're just no. fucking throwing your money and you're just like not at that around point, the dorky fucking other rich people. It's like cotillions, right? That's all they're doing. Just mm-hmm. cotillions left and right. Yeah. Ugh, it sounds like a nightmare. Fucking, Constant debutante balls sounds like nothing yeah. I want to be a part of. No, no. But I think this this was this was a bummer for Jerry Falwell as a little kid. But that's the, he loved to debut. He was a big debuter. Yeah. A debutist. So uh, exacerbating their sort of pariah status was the fact that Carrie Falwell had an unfortunate habit of playing profoundly abusive pranks on everyone around him. I'm going to quote now from a very fantastic book, God's Right Hand by Michael Winters. Jerry Falwell would later recall that his father was a prankster. Jerry once brought a friend home who admitted he was scared of Carrie. Jerry told his father of his friend's fear, half cautioning, half goading Carrie as he brought the young man into the house. When the young friend walked in, Carrie shouted, stop, aimed a pistol at the boy's feet, and shot a hole in the floor a few inches in front of his shoes. I've been trying to get that fly all day, Jerry's father announced, returning to his newspaper while the boy fled the house. Jerry admitted that he and his father howled with laughter. Some of the pranks were cruel, however. <laughs> Some of them were cruel as opposed to that other good prank that Look, just happened just that was not cruel. naturedly shooting at somebody. <laughs> it was a playful gunshot, Sophia. Not one of those mean gunshots. Some of the pranks were cruel, however, as when Carrie decided he had enough complaints from one of his workers. When the man called in sick, Carrie offered to have lunch brought to his house, then killed and skinned the man's cat, putting it into a squirrel stew and sent it to the man's home for lunch. The next day, the man complained that the squirrel meat in the stew had been tough, and Carrie told him he had eaten his own cat. That is not a joke. No, that's not a prank. <laughs> that's a Greek... Isn't that a Greek myth thing? The fucking... Oh, the myth? They, they fed dude to his own, his own kids. 
Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Like that's straight up fucking ancient evil. That's like that's not even like yeah. modern. <laughs> yeah, that's like what a Greek god would do to that's fuck what with I'm somebody saying. because yeah. like they have no sense of human morality. Yeah, it's like an Olympic prank. It's unhinged. From, like, it's serial killer shit. Mount Olympus. That like, is fucking insane. Yeah, that's a something a serial killer does as a joke. Oh, a hundred percent. Like, ha, 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 I'm gonna kill. <laughs> I made you eat your cat. Like, that is so crazy. What does he think the payoff is when he tells the guy, just watches him cry? I think it's just he's the guy's boss, so there's nothing the dude can do against him. No, I mean, but like, what's the reaction he's hoping for, for him to cry? Yeah, I think so, probably. That's so crazy. He's just a piece of shit. He's yeah, a really sure. bad person. Way better person than his kid turns out to be. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, hearing all that, it probably won't surprise you to learn that Carrie Falwell was an outrageous drunk. His brother Garland was, too. And while Carrie was a relatively peaceful drunk, preferring to get wasted at home alone most of the time, Garland was pretty much the worst-case scenario for an alcoholic. He had a tendency to fall into violent rages. In 1931, he was arrested for shooting at some teenagers who'd annoyed him. This was not an isolated incident. Garland Falwell had numerous arrests for violent drunken behavior. All of this came to a head in 1931, which was probably the worst year of young Jerry Falwell's life. It was certainly the worst year of his father's life. Carrie's daughter, Rasha, and Jerry's sister, was struck ill with appendicitis. Carrie didn't believe in hospitals, so he tried to treat her at home. Her appendix burst, and she died of peritonitis at age 10. There is a dead kid Isn't that there. also like, oh, you son of a bitch, you got me. <laughs> I snuck one in there. You got me. <laughs> Isn't it also an incredibly painful way to die? Oh, one of the worst, I yeah, would imagine. Yeah, from what I understand, if you, when your appendix explodes, it's like the most painful. It sounds like a terrible way to die. Yeah, also pretty cool that you have so much, like, hubris that you're like, no, I'll treat this. No, I'll treat this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in 1931, too, there's actual medicine by that point. For real. Yeah. Now, just a few months after Rasha died, while Carrie was still deep in grief, Garland got incredibly drunk and started shooting off firecrackers. Someone in town called the cops on him. For some unclear reason, probably boiling down to the fact that he was really wasted, Garland became convinced that his brother Carrie is the one that called the cops on him. He tracked Carrie down and started shooting at him. Carrie grabbed his shotgun, returned fire, and killed his brother instantly. Oh! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, that delights me. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you're going to like this, too. The local newspaper wrote of the event, Garland Falwell is dead. Thus, his turbulent career of terrorizing the police and populace was brought to an abrupt close. <laughs> <laughs> Even the paper shit on him. Yeah, fuck this guy. They're like, this is the worst guy in our city. Yeah. Who wants to dance on his grave that's, tonight? That's literally the tone of it. It's just like, what a piece of shit. Thank God he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Ding dong. It, and it's one of those things like, Carrie Falwell's obviously a bad guy. Sounds like this was a totally justified homicide. <laughs> like, I mean, if it's just fucking horrible people killing each other mm -hmm. it's just it's all a win-win they're both people who use guns as ways to punctuate like gunfire to punctuate their arguments <laughs> like, yeah i mean i feel like the only people then they should argue with is each other and that's what happened that's so great yeah yeah i i prefer to use a nice throwing bagel on a sling as a way to punctuate my rages i mean again would be more impressive if you could actually master the throwing you know, it's 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 new. You gotta you, look. Uh, yeah, you stop bringing it up like a everything? skill you have. <laughs> well, I can throw them with my hand. I'm trying to learn how to use the sling. All right, it's, it's do it new outside, like they said in the note. No, I'm only ever going to use it in recording studios. You're fired. At, at some point, yes. Eventually, I will cross a final line and damage equipment in this studio, and that will be the end of this podcast. <laughs> Anyway, 
back to the Falwells. So <laughs> things are going great for the Falwell family in 1931. Daughter dies of appendicitis. Gunfight between the two brothers leads to one of them dying. Yeah, uh, this all broke Carrie Falwell. His alcoholism got worse after this point, and Jerry would later recall the many nights that his father spent, drinking heavily and sobbing over his brother and daughter. All these scandals further isolated the Falwell clan from mainstream society in Lynchburg. And this was all exacerbated by the fact that Carrie was a second-generation atheist, so he was not uh, in line with the values of the town either. Now, Jerry's mother, Helen, was a very different person. Her family were hardcore Baptists. Some sources will say that she wasn't religious until her son started his church, but this seems to be untrue. She even made sure that Jerry and Jean went to church every Sunday. Religion was a part of Jerry's life from the beginning, but it wasn't a huge part. And for a long time, it seems like he kind of took after his dad in that regard. So he, he, he grows up as a little bit of a wild child. Now, the third person who helped to raise Jerry and Jean Falwell was their black nanny, David Brown. Jerry would later write, In the mornings he bathed and dressed us. He held and rocked us at nap time. He fed and changed us. He helped us with our first faltering steps, and he picked us up off the ground when we stumbled or fought or fell. He was practically a member of our family, but he ate alone on the back porch and sat in the shadows when he wasn't needed. Wow, sounds like they really valued him as a human being. Yeah, yeah. This is something that he writes regretfully about as an adult. Um, As a kid, you know, he's a kid. From the beginning, he took after his father, both in the fact that he was filled with ambition and reckless energy. His father taught he and his brother to drive when they were both 10 years old, which is, you know, the right age to start doing that at. Uh, They were allowed to drive around the family property as much as they wanted. When they were 13, Kerry lied about their ages to get them driver's licenses. He was, (laughs) so Jerry Falwell was the first kid at his school with a car, which obviously helped his social life. Kind of kind of washes away a little bit of the shame of your your dad killing your uncle. People are like, cool, a car. <laughs> He's got a car. <laughs> I don't even care that his dad shoots at us. <laughs> Jerry was a good student. He took after his father. He was intelligent, ambitious, and energetic. But he also took after his dad with a dedication to mean-spirited pranks. When he was in fifth grade, he let a snake loose in his classroom. This will be the least disturbing of the pranks that Jerry Falwell commits. You look so excited to tell I'm, me. I'm so excited to talk about it. I love it. <laughs> it's like, I, I love it whenever these people have pranks in their history. I, it's, I, it's like talking about Saddam Hussein threatening his principal with a gun. Like that, the, and it's these also the, the things that they call pranks. It's like, yeah, for rich people, it's pranks. Yeah. Poor people. It's mm, like assault and battery. <laughs> 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 Attempted murder. Uh, yeah. Uh, in 1948, when Jerry was 15, his father died of liver failure. This hit Jerry hard and quite possibly had an effect on his behavior in high school. But also was the least surprising way that Not that a, alcoholic yeah. was going to go. Yeah, yeah. That was the only way Carrie Falwell was going to go. That out. or shooting himself accidentally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jerry formed a gang uh, called the Wall Gang with his friends based on the fact that they would meet uh, at a wall to hang out. That's a That's very creative. Very creative. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Virginia in the 1940s was the world center of creativity. (laughs) Uh, Jerry was the leader of the gang because he was the only one with a car, and he liked to lead his group into a series of fistfights with other gangs around town. Winters writes that Falwell insisted things never went beyond, quote, a few split lips, the occasional broken bone, and small-scale property damage. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) the, The odd broken bone, like... Who of us hasn't formed a gang to break other people's bones? A little bit. Why do you think I was late today? Mm -hmm. Youthfully just cracking somebody over the head with a two by four. 
You know how I like to yeah. be a rascal. If you do it with a smile on your face, it's rascally. Yeah, exactly. As long as you're not frowning. <laughs> now, uh, Jerry's pranks grew more brutal in his late teens. I'm going to quote again from God's Right Hand. Once, to punish a neighbor, the gang thought uh, had called the police on them. They grabbed some old tar-soaked railroad ties and lit them on fire in front of the offender's home. They did not anticipate that the asphalt on the street would catch fire, but it did, and soon <laughs> the entire street was in flames. Falwell's skill as a prankster also took a darker turn. Like his dad, he could be cruel. Many years later, he would recall taking on a teacher whom he described as a mean little man who pranced about in our physical ed classes and who exhibited prissy falsetto ways. Falwell tackled him, took off his pants, locked him in a storage closet and then pinned the man's pants to a bulletin board in another part of the school. Another time he placed a live Wait, rat. This is a teacher he did this Yeah, this too? is his gym teacher. Holy fuck. Uh, gym teachers are usually the abusers. Yeah, I think this guy, uh, I think like. And he clearly did it because he was like, you're gay. Yeah, fuck exactly. You. Exactly. God. That's what Falwell thinks. Rips he his pants off, locks him in a closet. out of school for that? No, he's rich. <sighs> wow. Another For time, a teacher <laughs> pantsing a fucking teacher, pantsing and locking in a closet, oh, and man. nailing the pants to a wall. God, that's so fucked up. Yeah, Keep it's going. amazing. Another time, he placed a live rat in a teacher's drawer. When she opened the drawer, the rat jumped out, and the teacher fell unconscious to the floor. Now that's a classic prank. Yeah, I oh. mean that's the only one you could actually consider a prank. Yeah, that I guess the snake. Those are like good-natured country pranks. Depends if that if the snake bite is like. Yeah, Deadly. I guess it's like a gardener snake or something. Yeah, then it's yeah. fine. Yeah, then it's fine. Good-natured fun. Yeah. Abusing physically and pantsing or lighting someone's house on fire. I that's, don't call that if that's those are pranks. Uh, later in life, Jerry would say that these pranks and straight-up assaults are how he began to understand the principle of cause and effect. Actions, responsible or irresponsible, lead to consequences. But of course, there's no evidence that Jerry Falwell ever suffered any consequences as a result of his incredibly bad behavior. As an older man, he spoke with regret about these actions, and the idea he seems to want to push by telling these stories is that he had a growing realization of how bad he'd been, and that helped drive him to God. And this is where I have to point out something important. If you spend any time at all around evangelical Christian communities, at least the mainstream ones, you'll notice something peculiar. A shocking number of high-profile figures in that community will claim to have some sort of tremendously dark past, selling drugs or being involved in prostitution or being, you know, some sort of criminal, being violent or whatever. Uh, for many popular evangelical speakers, this dark past is an integral part of their backstory. These stories are usually lies and always exaggerated, and they serve primarily to highlight the power of Christ. Christ's grace. Most of our details on Jerry's early life come from Jerry himself. And while Winters, who researched the man thoroughly, does believe the stuff that I've related to you is true, I have my doubts that Falwell ever regretted any of his actions. Um, but in any case, it's important to Jerry Falwell, or it was, because now he's dead, uh, that you know that he was a bad guy before he found the light of the Lord. It always really creeps me out whenever, like, really horrible people will say like oh you know i was horrible and then i had a daughter and then i was mm -hmm. like oh man mm -hmm. i've been horrible or like oh and then i it, it's always very confusing to me that they don't understand empathy yeah. at all and that they literally need to torture people to learn empathy how is it not something that you just feel towards people towards people because well, i think in a lot of cases because you grow up rich and you don't have to but that's what's so crazy people. right yeah. it seems like money just takes away people's like value systems or replaces it and then they're like oh no i need to rape a girl like brock turner or something mm -hmm. to, to understand you know like oh yeah things actions have consequences why do we need to be your like 
ex- like experiment like other people. That's not right for it's, you to learn your morals on other people. And it only it really only seems to be with girls in particular because you only you usually hear the story with like I, when I had a daughter I mm-hmm. understood and it's like nobody's ever like you know I thought it was cool to kill cats until I had a kitten and then I was like oh all this cat murdering I've been doing is a bad thing nobody nobody says that they just say like I thought sexual harassment was fun until I had a daughter now I realize it's not yeah and it's same same with these like mm-hmm. rich ass guys like Jerry it's like oh well I didn't know that you couldn't actually do these really fucked up abusive things yeah. until I did them and nothing happened to me. It's like, <laughs> what? I suffered no consequences. Yeah, that makes no sense. Lit a guy's house on fire. <laughs> Jerry Falwell. Sophie's telling me that it's well past time for an ad break. Sophia, uh, you, you have any ads you want to tell? I mean, as you know, I love any kind of goods and services, um, but personally... I have a podcast named Private Parts Unknown that I co-host with Courtney Kosak, and it's about love and sexuality around the world. And we're about to go to Mexico City. Ooh. It's going to be really fun. That's one of my favorite cities. We're going to talk after the podcast for your tips. Okay. It's fucking great. Ah, Mexico City. Well, thank you for uh, bringing that up. I forgot because I got so excited by the bagel thing at the start of the show. Um, Should we go to ads now, Sophie? Sophie's saying we should go to ads. Products! It's the most wonderful time of the year. But of course, wonderful people are generally boring. And if you're a fan of Behind the Bastards, you probably would prefer to hear about the very worst people in all of history, which is why you're listening to this show and why you should listen to the wonderful audiobooks on Audible. Right now, Behind the Bastards has partnered with Audible to give you the gift of an Audible membership for 53% off for your first three months. Using Audible, you can listen to the stories of famed terrible people like Kaiser Wilhelm II with Kaiser Wilhelm II, A Life from Beginning to End on Audible. Or you can check out the story of our old pal Jay Stahl in the Court of the Red Czar, which is also on Audible, 27 hours and 30 minutes long. So you'll have, you know, plenty of terrible person listening time. So right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 per month. That's more than half off the regular price. And when you sign up, you'll get to choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash behind or text behind to 500-500 in order to get this deal. Again, that's audible.com slash behind or text behind to 500-500. We're back, and Sophie is refusing to give me back my sling, um, which is probably a responsible move. Um, but I'm I'm still furious, livid, mm. Mm. angry. Just imagine how furious I would be if you slung something and it hit Anderson. Ooh, it's a bagel. Dogs love them. But if it hit it's her, moldy and, her, and it's... with a force, it's not. Also, she doesn't like everything bagels. <laughs> What kind of bagels does she like? Blueberry. All right, I'll throw blueberry next time Anderson's in the room. See, Those are this the worst is kind of bagel. This is how empathy works. This is how empathy this works. Is, yeah. This is a man who understands empathy. She's, you're still not getting back your sling, though, dude. Sorry. Fair enough. We're talking Jerry Falwell. J Fall. So, uh. That was do, do, weird. Do, do. I don't like that. J Fall. J Fall. I always give my subjects a terrible nickname. I don't like it. You don't like that? Jerry. Jerf. 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 Sounds like it's a Missy Elliott exclusive. Jerf. <laughs> I 
I don't you know. know he doesn't get that reference, is. but I did, and I liked it. Sophie Thanks. says it's good. Do you seriously not know who Missy Elliott is? I feel like you're doing this on purpose. I'm really not. I thought it was Ariana Grande for a very long time. That is what it is. You called. Oh her, wait, no, I called her Grand. He said, called her Ariana Grand. There we go. I and forgot I had, which embarrassing thing I got wrong. <laughs> Only one of Jarf's pranks had any sort of long-term impact on him. In his senior year, Jerry and his friends got the combination of the school safe. They stole huge numbers of lunch tickets and handed them out to their friends in the locker room. They considered this a harmless prank. The school considered this thousands of dollars in theft. <laughs> uh, Jerry certainly could have faced criminal charges for this, because it was thousands of dollars of theft. Instead, he was simply denied the privilege of addressing the school as class valedictorian. So... God, the consequences really ruined his life. Yeah, yeah, that really <laughs> fucked things up for him. Jerry went to Lynchburg College after high school. Jerry Falwell majored in mechanical engineering and excelled at math and physics. He didn't spend any school time studying religion. He later recalled, though, that his mother's habit of listening to Charles Fuller's old-fashioned revival hour on the radio every Sunday had an impact on him. Early in 1952, while hanging out at the cafe with his wall gang friends, Falwell asked if anyone in town knew a church that had preaching like Charles Fuller's show. One of his friends advised the Park Avenue Baptist Church. He said the church had good music and, most importantly, pretty girls. In search of these girls, Jerry Falwell made the fateful decision to attend church on January 20th, 1952. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. During that service, he met a young woman, Maisel Pate, who played piano for the church. Soon after, Maisel and Jerry would wind up dating and then marrying. They would be together for the rest of Jerry's life. And young Falwell found so more. So sorry for that lady. Maisel? Uh, I think she was pretty shitty, too. Oh, yeah. fuck her. Yeah. Young Falwell found more than just a soulmate at the Park Avenue Church. He found Jesus. He would later <laughs> recall that his journey to becoming a born-again Christian started when he learned that the world of man was run by Satan, while the world of God was ruled by Jesus. Jerry had seen more of the dark side of the world of man than most kids by this point. He turned away from the from darkness. From him, from himself. Well, the and darkness, his dad. <laughs> the darkness call came from inside the house, Jerry Falwell. As he's burning most of those the terrible shit down. that you've been a witness to, you did. Just strips a man's pants off, beats him up, and locks him in a closet. Boy, people are awful. Yeah, he's like, there's really a lot of arson and assault yeah. going on, and yeah. I don't know, at least around me. Seems like people are really violent right around me. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I'm like at the epicenter. <laughs> Fucking idiot. Uh, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Jerry decided after this point that he was going to turn away from the darkness of the world of man and align himself with the light of the world of God. In 1956, at age 22, Jerry Falwell founded a church of his own, the Thomas Road Baptist Church. He made himself the pastor, and he started preaching. According to the Western Illinois Historical Review, quote, From the time he founded his church, all of his activities flowed from his efforts to build it. TRBC built a home for alcoholics, a haven for unwed mothers, and established a television ministry at the urging of Falwell. Jerry's television and radio show, The Old Time Gospel Hour, was a direct imitation of the radio preacher his mother had loved. By making the jump to television, Falwell became one of the pioneers of televangelism. A guy named Percy Crawford was the actual first televangelist, and both men owed a debt to fascist-slash-Catholic priest Charles Coughlin in their attempts to create a media empire based around his preaching. But Jerry was one of the first ones to really, like, make a televangelist thing, like, as, the, as like the foundation of his career. Like, Quick question. Yeah. Uh, how does pastoring work? You can just make yourself a pastor? Yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Okay, I'm a pastor now. Yeah. 
This is America. There's I don't think there's really any more to it than that. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's pretty great. I've I've been considering coming. I've I've, I've cons- I'm considering becoming a freelance cult leader. Um, so I've been looking into how easy it is to just declare yourself a whatever of whatever religion. You just, it turns out there's no rules around that sort of thing. Well, if you need a sidekick, I'm here, and I love just. I don't know, brainwashing people, I guess, the, is how other people put it. The key is we can't spend more than 20 hours a week on cult-related business. Well, good. I don't have yeah. time for that. Yeah. I, I want time for this to be more than a part-time thing, you know? Exactly. It's a side hustle. Yes. Like that, I it want it to be a cult for millennials, and as a result of that, we've got to be like contract employees. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's like five hours driving for Lyft, a mm-hmm. couple hours- Running a cult. Running a cult. Mm-hmm. Then I do stand-up at night. And no health care. It's, what a beautiful way to live. <laughs> yeah. uh, our generations really got it made in the shade. So, like his father, Jerry Falwell proved to have a brilliant head for business. Unlike his father, all of Jerry's businesses were above board and legal. Uh, Boo. And, yeah. I actually, see, I told you, you're going to like Carrie Falwell way better. I already miss him. Yeah, I miss him. Oh. What you doing, Carrie? Dead, Dead from alcoholism. Cool, cool. <laughs> He's shooting at people's feet in heaven now. Ah, uh, <laughs> hell must be missing an angel. <laughs> in 1967, Jerry founded his first school, the Lynchburg Christian Academy. He became convinced of the necessity of creating a separate Christian education system, one that could protect students from the evils of the world of Satan. Some of the evils he preached against were eminently sensible, given his difficult upbringing. He railed against alcohol and drunkenness, due in part to the horrifying examples set down by his dad and uncle. But Jerry also preached against integration. So, I was waiting for one that was going to rear yeah, its ugly yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, uh, some, we, we get a get a nice dose of racism here. I'm going to quote again from God's right hand. One early sermon from 1958 has come down to us, printed in the newsletter that Falwell distributed to those who watched his television show. It is curious that he chose his sermon for the first installment of the newsletter because it did not treat one of his usual subject topics. The sermon is entitled, Segregation or Integration? Which? Unsurprisingly, given the sermon was preached in 1958 in South Central Virginia, Falwell argued in favor of segregation. Falwell's sermon begins by blaming the Supreme Court for the chaos and racial tension that was then on the rise. He also noted that the communist countries were using the racial tension as a propaganda tool throughout the world. Indeed, Falwell did not blame blacks for causing the trouble. The true Negro does not want integration. He realizes his potential is far better among his own. Falwell blamed the push for integration first on Moscow, second on politicians using the issue for their own ends, and finally on the devil himself, who boxed God out of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence when it rendered its 1954 decision in Brown versus the Board of Education, ending legal segregation. If Chief Justice Earl Warren and his associates had known God's word and desired to do the Lord's will, I am quite confident that the 1954 decision would never have been made, Falwell said. What could possibly have been worked out in a scriptural and orderly way has now become a touchy problem. Touchy. Just a deep sigh of... Yeah. It's obviously terrible. Um, Although it's also obviously like... You, you throw a rock in Virginia and you'll find somebody who believes basically the same thing. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in a little bit of fairness, Jerry would completely change his mind on segregation later in life uh, and would devote years to preaching against it uh, not that long after this. But while the civil rights movement saw its most crucial difficult hours, Jerry Falwell preached against it. He believed God had decreed the segregation of races and he cited, for one thing, God's decision that the Jews should be his chosen people as evidence of the fundamental validity of segregation. 
Wow, I've never heard that spin. That is quite quite the racist logic there. That's pretty insane. Yeah, it's neat to run into new racist logic that I hadn't run into before. Yeah, I yeah. was like, whoa, that's, oh. I've never connected those before. Yeah. Uh, thanks for bringing us into the fold. <laughs> yeah, thanks for really connecting those dots, Jerry. <laughs> Fuck. Now, Jerry started to change his mind about segregation in the mid-1960s. There were a number of events that led to this, but the single searing experience he would later cite as key to his conversion on the issue was the day that his shoe shiner, a black man named Lewis, asked him a question. He told Jerry he was a fan of the pastor's sermons and listened to them on the radio regularly. Then he asked if he would be able to join Falwell's church. Jerry later wrote that this question left him utterly speechless. Because, like... He wasn't allowing black people in his church. No shit. Suddenly he was confronted directly with the fact that he was racist as shit. In the mid-1960s, Jerry Falwell hired his first non-white employee, the Indonesian musician Paul Tan. In 1968, he opened the Thomas Road Baptist Church to black members. And in 1969... So wait, hold on a second. He mm-hmm. opened the church to black members mm-hmm. in 68. When in, did he talk to his shoe shiner? That was like in the somewhere like sixty four or sixty five. It took him a while. So so he had he had a, an epiphany, and then it took him three to four years to yeah. still change his mind. Again, we're talking. These this are his recollections. Su- this is such horse shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's also like exactly what we were saying. Like, oh, I needed to first think that black people weren't human to then be like, mm-hmm. oh, I've learned a powerful lesson. What the fuck? I don't buy any of this. Yeah, and it's also, it's worth noting that when he does open his church up is like when the civil rights movement hit that point of critical mass. Like, it's not like he got on board segregation when it was still, like, it's one thing to be, like, in favor of segregation, then realize you're wrong at a time when, like, it matters. It takes some courage yeah. to, like, be like, no, I was wrong. Like, once the civil rights movement's past its critical point, he's like, oh, shit, I guess this is the way things are going. I'm going to open my church up. Yeah, like, oh, progress seems to be happening everywhere. Okay, I'll join. Yeah, it's like it's like being cool with gay marriage in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, that being your first step there. And the thing is, it's, it's weird because right now everybody talks about, like, cancel culture and, like, mm-hmm. oh, what, you can't be better or, like, change or anything. And I absolutely think that that is what we want from people. Yeah. But I don't know how much of the story that Jerry Falwell made up about himself is actually real or true. And that's really what I object to, not the fact that he changed from being a racist to not being a racist. Yeah, yeah. It's it's good that he got better on segregation. But the question is, do I think that it was a matter of moral courage and realizing he was wrong, or do I think it was a matter of he realized where the wind was a blowing. Exactly. And I do think in his head, he does believe the version of the story where he has a change of heart. I mm. do think he believes that in his head because I think he needs to think he's a good person and people like that make up stories to justify right. himself as like a better person. Just like he justified burning that house down by... <laughs> <laughs> they were cold inside. They were I cold helped. inside. <laughs> Central heating wasn't around yet. <laughs> I was being helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like his dad justified shooting at that kid's feet because he had to deal with a fly. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Hey, that was a joke, okay? You yeah. know, just don't get it. Yeah. Snowflake. Snowflake. Snowflakes hate being shot at. Yeah. <laughs> Idiots. Ah, so, um, yeah, Jerry was always adamant that the civil rights movement had no impact on his decision to integrate his church and school. He framed his change as entirely an internal revelation. I realized that I was completely wrong. What I had been taught was completely wrong. For me, it was a scriptural and personal realization that segregation was evil. I realized it was not taught in the Bible. So. 
Okay. Kind of weird that he's like specifically doesn't give credit to the civil rights movement. He's like specifically none of you made no, a difference. Nar- Martin Luther King had nothing to do with me letting black people into my church. It was that's, all me, baby. That's so much more. That's still so racist. <laughs> I, oh. Jerry Falwell, had my own civil rights movement in my head, <laughs> and it was way so better than the one. Weird. <laughs> like in my version, yeah, I was the leader. There yeah, actually, was an MLK. There was no Malcolm X. There was no one. Mm-hmm. Really, it was no me. No Black Panther student I, breakfast I changed program. everything. Mm-hmm. I did a great job. I did a great job. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, Jerry Falwell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So, uh, in 1971, Jerry Falwell started the Lynchburg Baptist College. It was later renamed Liberty University. The college was something of a loss leader for Falwell's burgeoning empire. It relied heavily on donations and endowments from major donors and was in heavy debt for much of Jerry's tenure as the head of the school. But still, it succeeded in providing religious higher education to whole generations of evangelical Christians. All these things would probably have been enough to keep a normal man occupied his entire life, and perhaps they would have done so for Jerry Falwell. But in 1973, something happened that would change his life and the very essence of American Christianity forever. The Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade. This landmark case established a woman's right to get an abortion without excessive governmental interference. Falwell later wrote when he read about the ruling in the newspaper, quote, I sat there staring at the Roe v. Wade story, growing more and more fearful of the consequences of the Supreme Court's act and wondering why so few voices had been raised against it. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the surprising history of how American evangelical Christians thought about abortion prior to 1973. Don't leave me hanging like that. I mean, it's an ad plug time. You know what is also protected from excessive government interference? The products and services that advertise on our show. Was that a good? I liked it. Thank you, Sophie. Sophie approves. Sophia? Yeah. No cosine? I feel like you need to have both the SOFs aboard. All right. Yeah, it's, I'll it's, rubber stamp this. It's like Thanks, when you buddy. need to shoot, launch a nuclear missile from yeah, a submarine. Yeah, you need both keys you, to turn yeah, exactly, at the same time. Exactly. We can't go. But now we can. We are right parallel sitting across from each other. This We've is, surrounded him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're so surrounded. <laughs> so surrounded. And, and, and now uh, I'm capable of empathetically viewing women as people. <laughs> All the took was this. You didn't even need to have a daughter or nothing. <gasps> I have a sister. She's a dog. Oh, my God. You called Anderson a girl. I'm so proud of you. I know. I usually call all dogs boys. But, but Anderson is a girl. You're right. We've, yeah, we've, we've, you beat that into my head. God, we I'm should f- really go to ads. This has been taken. Yeah. Yeah. For all the fans, Anderson is a girl. So stop calling her a boy on Twitter. Also, Thanks. stop stop asking me to post pictures. I think a lot of them think Anderson's my dog. I mean, she, she she's in your family. She is in my family. Yeah. Who boy. But I birthed them from my forehead. It's we are. All Zeus. Okay, ad break. Terrible ads. at ad transitions here. Ads. Products. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. 
Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month. No matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We're back! Now, as his preaching on segregation probably keyed you in on, Jerry Falwell was not a big fan of the Supreme Court. He'd been pissed at it in 1962 when they ruled on Ingle versus Vitale, uh, which was the ruling that decided it was unconstitutional for schools to force students to pray. He wrote of this, when a group of nine idiots can pass a ruling down so that it is illegal to read the Bible in our public schools, they need to be called idiots. But Ingle v. Vitale did not convince Jerry Falwell to get into politics. See, for a very long time in America, it was seen as somewhat foul, even obscene, for pastors to wade directly into national politics. Sharon Overcast, an evangelical Christian who later worked with Falwell, recalled that prior to the 70s, politics was always labeled as dirty, as something to stay out of. For Falwell, and many other Christian extremists, Roe v. Wade was a wake-up call. I'm going to quote now from an essay on Jerry Falwell by Doug Banward of the Western Illinois Historical Review. Many religious conservatives, like Falwell, would later identify the Roe decision as the critical issue that awakened them from a long political slumber after largely being inactive in the 1960s. As Falwell put it, the decision by the Supreme Court legalizing abortion on demand did more to destroy our nation than any other decision it has made. Moeller later called the 1973 Roe decision the stick of dynamite that exploded the issue. For evangelicals, Roe v. Wade was truly explosive in that it legitimized abortion into national law, a practice deemed offensive, barbaric, savage, and a violation of God's precious handiwork here on earth. Not only did Roe v. Wade provide a wake-up call to Falwell and religious conservatives, it also resulted in later mobilization and activism on two closely related areas, gay rights and women's liberation. Rights for gays and women were often closely tied to the abortion issue as family issues. If women could get an abortion, 
No longer did they need a man to take care of them. No longer would they be confined to the kitchen, household, or local PTA meeting. Their newfound independence could result in a full frontal assault on the traditional nuclear family, which many conservatives believe to be the way God desired the family structure to look like. Yeah, also Saturday was uh, International Safe Abortion Day. So oh, good. Have a happy that day to everybody. Have a happy that day to we everybody. We did a series, too, on it on the podcast. Private Parts Unknown. You should check it out. Check it out. International Safe Abortion Day. Mm-hmm. It's a good holiday. Some important shit. Better holiday than International Podcast Day, which it is today. Cute. Every day is National Something Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been like National Siblings Day like four times, and I text my brother, who is a doctor, who is not amused. I'm trying to do – I'm tired of doing the same joke where I just take a picture of an empty chair, and I'm like, I love my sister or my brother because <laughs> I'm an only child. I'm tired of doing it. Now – uh, Jerry got together with several other aggrieved religious people uh, in order to fight back against the Supreme Court's overreach. One of these people was Paul Weyrich, a Catholic, and another was Howard Phillips, a Jew. Together they formed a political action group called the Moral Majority in 1979. That's and Howard, up. Yeah, Phillips seemed to mostly be there. Be like, no, we're not just Christians. I know. We got I'm ashamed guy. of him. Yeah, he's, we he's disown you. pretty lame. So uh, the moral majority was formed specifically to lobby to end abortion, reinstate school prayer, and force men and women back into traditional gender roles. Their goal was nothing less than to legislate fundamentalist Christian morality as the law of the land. And most sources you'll read on this, including Michael Winters, will note that Roe v. Wade was the catalyst for all this. But not everyone agrees on that point. Other researchers will point out that segregation may itself have been a more direct inspiration for the formation of the moral majority than abortion. Randall Balmer, a professor at Dartmouth University and a historian, calls the idea that abortion was the inciting incident for the moral majority one of the most durable myths in modern history. It is certainly true, and documented beyond debate, that abortion was the primary issue the moral majority put at the center of their activism. They even called themselves new abolitionists in their quest to end abortion. The act of comparing themselves to anti-slavery crusaders takes some enormous balls, given what I'm about to read next. Quote, The abortion myth quickly collapses under historical scrutiny. In fact, it wasn't until 1969, a full six years after Roe, that evangelical leaders at the behest of conservative activist Paul Weyrich seized on abortion not for moral reasons, but as a rallying cry to deny President Jimmy Carter a second term. Why? Because the anti-abortion crusade was more palatable than the religious right's real motive, protecting segregated schools. See? Yeah. Oh, it's a tough... Competition. Who do we hate more, women or black people? Oh my God, <sighs> black women. Yeah, that that is the number one hated group. Yeah. <laughs> so Balmer points out with exhaustive documentation that throughout the 1960s and early 70s, abortion was not a big deal for most Christians, even fundamentalist ones. In 1968, the Christian Medical Society and Christianity Today wrote that abortion was not sinful and that, quote, individual health, family welfare, and social responsibility could all justify the termination of a pregnancy. Fine. Wow. In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention had passed a resolution stating, quote, Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. 
relatively woke for Christians today, at least. The convention reaffirmed this decision twice after Roe v. Wade in 1974 and in 1976. In the immediate wake of the ruling, W.A. Criswell, the convention's former president and one of the most prominent evangelical Christians in America, said, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. Hallelujah. Yep. <laughs> Things really took a turn. Abortion had been a significant issue for Catholics for quite some time, however. So it was like evangelical Protestants didn't really care about abortion prior to 1979. Catholics, you know, they didn't they, they weren't down with condoms. I mean, they certainly weren't down with abortion. Uh, the church has been pretty consistently anti-choice for quite a while. But American Protestants and evangelicals didn't really care about the matter one way or the other. What many of them did care about, however, was integration because they were Southerners in the 1960s and 70s and just really, really racist. I'm going to quote from Balmer again. In May 1969, a group of African-American parents in Holmes County, Mississippi, sued the Treasury Department to prevent three new whites-only K-12 private academies from securing full tax-exempt status, arguing that their discriminatory policies prevented them from being considered charitable institutions. The schools had been founded in the mid-1960s in response to the desegregation of public schools set in motion by Brown versus the Board of Education decision of 1954. In 1969, the first year of desegregation, the number of white students enrolled in public schools in Holmes County dropped from 700 71 to 28. The following year, that number fell to zero. So one of the responses of the Christian community throughout the South was to open private schools so that they did not have to, if they were private religious schools, you can keep black people out. And then we can still have our whites. Just like schools. Jesus intended. Just like Jesus intended. And that's, to love everyone in stages. Yeah, that's kind of the birth of the private religious school system in America, excluding black people. Fuck. Pretty cool. In Green versus Kennedy, David Kennedy was Secretary of Treasury at the time, decided in 1970 the plaintiffs won a preliminary injunction which denied the segregation academy's tax-exempt status until further review. In the meantime, the government was solidifying its position on such schools. Later that year, President Richard Nixon ordered the Internal Revenue Service to enact a new policy denying tax ex exemptions to all segregated schools in the United States. Wow, and he did a good thing. Yeah, Nixon was actually pretty good on that issue. Uh, was not really, like the religious, again, this is before the religious right exists. Like fundamentalist Christians are not a voting block at this point in any meaningful yeah, way. Yeah, but Nixon also like dropped a lot of slurs and stuff. That's why I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. But he didn't so, give a shit about God. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I meant in terms of black people. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know yeah. where he would fall on that, you know? He was good about this one. Yeah, Nixon's one of those weird ones where it's like you can listen to hours of him using racial slurs and then he'll ban racist schools from being tax exempt. And you can listen to him like threaten to have journalists murdered and he'll start the EPA too. He's, yeah, it's, he's, a, he's a confusing one. He's a confusing one. <laughs> Uh, now, um, reading all of this added some additional context to something I'd read in God's Right Hand, which definitely takes the the angle that, like, the moral majority was all about abortion. Like, this, Balmer is kind of an opposed to other scholars when he puts segregation at the center of why the Christian right becomes a political thing. But it did add some extra context to this quote. Falwell had been profoundly disturbed by the actions of the federal government, legalizing abortion, removing prayer from the public schools, sending the IRS after Christian academies. To him, this amounted to a political assault on his turf, the moral fiber of the nation, and he could begin to envision politics as the means to beating back the assault. So this is one of the weird things. God's Right Hand is like a really good biography by Winters. It has a lot of really good 
info in it. But Winters is also kind of comes across as, well, he's critical of a lot that Falwell did, fundamentally sympathetic to the man as a human being. And I think he misses, like the fact that he phrases it as sending the IRS after Christian academies. And I'm sure that's how Falwell would like to report it. Like what Falwell was pissed about was them stopping Christians from segregating schools. Sure. Yeah. And it is something that I Winters doesn't really touch on enough, but I, I really think Balmer's probably on the right side of this one. But I'm not a scholar. So, um, yeah, Balmer makes a strong case that the birth of the Christian right as a political movement was very much inspired by evangelical religious leaders to keep black people out of their churches and schools. Quote, the Green v. Connolly ruling provided a necessary first step. It captured the attention of evangelical leaders, especially as the IRS began sending questionnaires to church-related segregation academies, including Falwell's own Lynchburg Christian School, inquiring about their racial policies. Falwell was furious. In some states, he famously complained, it's easier to open a massage parlor than a Christian school. Is that massage parlor open to people of all races, Jerry? (laughs) Because if it is, I don't have any problem with it. Yeah. Not if he could help it. Yeah, not if he could help it. One such school, Bob Jones University, a fundamentalist college in Greenville, South Carolina, was especially obdurate. The IRS had sent its first letter to Bob Jones University in November 1970 to ascertain whether or not it discriminated on the basis of race. The school responded defiantly. It did not admit African Americans. Hmm. Wasn't, isn't even, they didn't have, you couldn't be uh, taking someone of a different race to I think what like their school stuff even recently right oh yeah Bob Jones. yeah, the, yeah. That, that's, they were in the news for that yeah that's continued up until the modern era yeah they Bob Jones really sticks by segregation oh, it's yeah. kind of wild because this is so recent yeah the the birth of the religious right is very much tied into Bob Jones University wanting to be as racist a school as they can possibly be cool mission yeah. cool mission Now, Bob Jones University did try to throw the IRS a bone to maintain their tax-exempt status. They took in a single black student. He dropped out a month later for reasons that I'm sure are completely unfathomable to everybody listening. Yeah. (laughs) Why would that have happened? Yeah. What? He didn't love the new school? That's so crazy. It seems like he would have been totally comfortable there. Seems like it would have been a great time for him. Yeah. Fuck. In 1975, the school was finally forced to admit black students on a wider basis, but they qualified that they were only admitting married black people. The fear was that unmarried black students might <gasps> wind up fucking white students. Dun, dun, we couldn't dun. have that. Interracial dating was strictly prohibited. So, in 1976, the IRS, who are the heroes of the story today, rescinded Bob Jones University's tax-exempt status. Good. <laughs> Yes. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, the I, hey, man, they're on the right side of this one. Paul Weyrich and Jerry Falwell were deeply unhappy at all this government overreach. They chose to focus on the Carter administration, which actually doesn't make a lot of sense. The Nixon administration had started going after evangelical schools. Bob Jones University had lost its tax-exempt status more than a year before Carter took office. But Weyrich and Falwell ignored all this. They made it their overriding goal to ensure a conservative kicked Carter out of office. Interesting that fact they don't attack the republican party for their role in this they just go after jimmy carter interesting kind of makes you wonder if maybe it had more to do with the fact that these were rich men than christians but that's just a conspiracy theory on my part i mean being rich like crazy rich in this country is Mm -hmm. a conspiracy theory (laughs) yeah now 
The leaders of the moral majority knew that segregation was not exactly a major vote-winning issue in 1979. They were not going to ignite an evangelical political movement by focusing on racism or any of the other issues they were most obsessed with at the time. Weyrich and Falwell were also both opponents of the Equal Rights Amendment. They supported the banning of pornography. But, as Weyrich later recalled, I was trying to get these people interested in those issues, and I utterly failed. So they're trying to, like, get the religious right on board with, like, banning the ERA, banning pornography, allowing schools to segregate, and, like, they really, they can't get anybody on board. Nobody wants to, like... Like, anybody hype about these issues? People are like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it was a different time. But abortion provided the moral majority with an easy cause to crusade against. A banner other propagandized Christians could rally behind. Stop killing babies is an easier battle cry than keep black people out of our schools. So... That is why they pick abortion as at least the public face of the movement. And this brings up the question, how did the moral majority organize evangelicals against abortion if abortion hadn't been a big part of evangelical politics prior to that point? The answer to this, as with so many great questions in American history, boils down to they hated women being free. Duh. Yeah. Of course, that isn't a great vote-getter either, so they framed their opposition to abortion and the Equal Rights Amendment as being pro-family. There we go. That's how you get a fucking... That cinched it. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote Doug Banwart again. Over the course of the 1970s, ministers connected defense of the traditional family with opposition to abortion, feminism, and gay rights. Such rights to those in the moral majority attacked the tried-and-true social order that had persevered for generations. According to the moral majority, who could possibly be anti-family? In addition, it was this return to moral sanity that was trying to restore America from the upheaval of the recent past. Rather than speak out directly against gays, feminists, and abortionists, they often delivered the same message shrouded in pro-family terms. For example, moral majority leaders defined traditional families as those with two heterosexual parents. This carried significant appeal among conservatives in the wake of the 1960s. By framing the issue as defense of the family, the leaders of the Christian right effectively turned liberals into enemies of the family, at least in the eyes of millions of voters. And this is what led them to their violent opposition of the Equal Rights Amendment. This was the first test of the moral majority. Jerry Falwell warned that passage of the amendment could, quote, sanction homosexual marriage, send mothers and girls into combat, and generally injure the dignity of the traditional family. Gasp. Yeah. You say as you hug your traditional family member, Anderson the dog. Now, uh, for reference, I think I should read out the main portions of the suggested amendment, the Equal Rights Amendment, this very scary family-destroying amendment. Section 1, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Section 2, the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. Section 3, this amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. So that, I mean, that, that wipes the family right to. out. Yeah. yeah, 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 that that families should be destroyed amendment to the amendment was, uh, was real extreme, yeah. Cool. So obviously we couldn't have that happen. Falwell and his fellow conservatives were terrified that the ERA would lead to nightmares like government-funded daycare and paternity leave. These were two things that they cited directly as why the ERA was bad. It just seems like, how can you not feel like the biggest nerd when you're like, (laughs) I'm anti-porn, I'm anti, like all the things you're anti- Makes you such a fucking nerd. Does that party not ever being like, dudes, we're doing the nerdiest shit out here. What are we doing? They're keeping women under lock and key. 
So crazy to me. Like it's like if you're a reasonable person, being opposed to government funded daycare and paternity leave sounds like lunacy. Uh, but the fear among conservatives was that like if there's government funded daycare, women can have jobs. And then they won't gasp. Yeah, then they won't be res- like reliant on a man for everything. And if there's paternity leave, then dads could take care of kids too. And then moms could have careers and be independent people. It's just defending gender roles is so nerdy too. It's another to it, be like this is what I care about. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that the man does man things and the yeah. woman does woman things and we've decided what those things are. Mm-hmm. Like how do you even get how do you even get enough energy to care about that? It's the <laughs> only thing you care about if you're the kind of person who cares about that. It's just so crazy to me. I'm like, go live your life. Yeah, that's the like the core of this is a bunch of people who like can't fucking deal with other people wanting a different thing out of life than they do, which is really usually the core of like 60% of bastardy. Speaking of a gigantic bastard... Phyllis Schleifle, uh, a Christian activist and a gigantic piece of shit, wrote that the Equal Rights Amendment would be, quote, the first anti-family amendment in the Constitution. It would protect bigamists, legalize prostitution, and defang rape laws. The social and political goals of ERAers are radical, irrational, and unacceptable to Americans. In the essay where she wrote this, Schleifle created the acronym STOP ERA. STOP stood for... Stop taking our privileges. She made an acronym with the word that the acronym is in the acronym. That's like saying the title of the movie in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or wearing the band shirt to the concert. Like, no, I just don't do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so Jerry Falwell and his comrades leapt into the 1980 election with the intent to restore their version of God to a position of primacy in American politics. In 1980, Falwell told his congregation, we're fighting a holy war. What's happened to America is that the wicked are bearing rule. We have to lead the nation back to the moral stance that made America great. We have to wield influence on those who govern us. Just trying to make America great. Everyone's having fun. Fuck them. Yeah. Yeah, this does happen in like, well, no, I guess 1980 was, it was about to be a fun year. I mean, cocaine everywhere. Disco, yeah. Coming off of the fun-ass rock and roll 70s. Yeah, mm-hmm. people are just having a good time. Not These if Jerry fucking nerds are out here trying to ruin it for everybody. It, it's that pendulum. You have like sexual liberation and like the, the, the civil rights movement and stuff. And then all of the assholes organize to like push the pendulum back. It's kind of like what's happening now, except it happened earlier. I know. It's just upsetting. It's like, let women work. They'll just buy stuff for you. Yeah. that uh, Women like, are so nice. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like we're so nice. Yeah. You just, you just want to participate in the flawless system of capitalism like everybody else. We just want to buy shit. We just want to buy shit. We weren't even allowed to have our own credit cards to like the 70s. Well, that's a fair rule. Because <laughs> <laughs> bitches be shopping, am I right? bitches be shopping. <gasps> Uh, I, I, that's going to be the core of my stand-up act. I don't think anybody's joked about that before. It's going to no. break new ground. Also, you should really talk about the differences between black people and white people. I'm going to do that when I get my new Netflix show canceled. <laughs> really bold title. Really going to break new ground with that. I can't mm-hmm. wait. Mm-hmm. Or, or something to do with safe spaces. I, one of those two is going to be the title for sure. It'll really be groundbreaking. Can't wait to open for you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get $8 million (laughs) to complain about how I've been canceled by social justice warriors. Yeah, uh, Miles performs in Cancelvania. He opens for Louis C.K. and Aziz opens for Miles. 
Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. That's who you want opening for you is the season. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I'm just saying that's yeah. how Cansylvania works. Mm-hmm. I mean. It is. That's literally how it works. Yeah. So, Cosby still performs in Con- Cansylvania because <sighs> it's Cansylvania. I mean, he's huge there. Yeah. Just stumbling onto the stage, can't see anything because he's. I mean, he's crushing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or he's attempting to, but he's blind, so he can't make his way up onto the stage. It doesn't matter. People in Pennsylvania cans. will clap for that. <laughs> so, uh, when Jerry Falwell spoke, millions of people listened. At the start of the 1980s, his TV show was hosted on 373 stations, more than Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. His church, the Thomas Road Baptist Church, had grown to become one of the very first megachurches with regular attendance of more than 17,000. But the true genius of Jerry Falwell in guiding the moral majority was his ability to unify different types of Christians together. Catholics and Protestants did not, traditionally, see one another as groups with much in common. They regularly found themselves in opposition. Likewise, mainstream Protestants, Pentecostals, Evangelicals, and Fundamentalists were all distinct groups of Christians, and they had no real history of organizing together towards a common purpose. Falwell succeeded in welding them together for the first time. He was criticized by the president of Bob Jones University for creating an unholy alliance with the evil Catholics. It's weird to really, like, that's where a religion used to be in America, where somebody was like, I want to get all the Christians together to stop people from letting women work. And someone's like, but we're going to work with the Catholics to do that? That's hilarious. Fucking nuts. So, uh, Falwell replied to that, I am indeed considered to be dangerous to liberals, feminists, abortionists, and homosexuals, but not to Bible-believing Christians. This time preaching would not be enough. It is my duty as a Christian to apply the truths of Scripture to every act of government. No, that seems it's constitutional. Not. Yeah. No but, one asked you. Yeah. That's, Damn, why are you volunteering for a job that is literally does not exist? You yeah, just when, appointed yourself. When we this started like this whole thing. pastoring on a huge ass level. Yeah. He's like, well, this is what I do now. No one fucking asked you. Yeah, this, this has worked in Virginia, so clearly the entire country should have to have me as their pastor. Yeah, I, I love that. Like, this is the, 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 like, we have to apply, it's my duty to apply the truths of scripture to every act of government. It's like, no, dude, like, when we whole started this whole country thing, like, the whole idea was that, like, that's not how we're going to do it. You, we're not going to have religion be involved in politics. No, bitch, your duty is to, like, groom yourself, go out into the world and be someone that improves it. Mm-hmm. And that's literally it. Yeah, just that's it stay away from everybody pay taxes and don't assault people yeah, well, yeah. that's really the only goals we want you to that's, work that's on that's all Jerry. we ask of anyone that's all we wanted <laughs> yeah. don't fucking feed people their cats and shit like that that's I mean is that a too too big an ask it was too big of an ask for his dad yeah big cat feeder to people guy Jesus yeah um so Jerry Falwell's chief innovation, the one which has shaped American politics ever since, was to convince all Christian conservatives that they're really on the same side, fighting for the sanctity of the family. Abortion, opposition to gay rights, advocating for the return of prayer in school, all these things can be bundled together as saving the family. Falwell wrote, The family is the fundamental building block and basic unit of our society, and its continued health is a prerequisite for a healthy and prosperous nation. No nation has ever been stronger than the families within her. And so the moral majority set to work. They started Honestly, pro- just reconnect with your own dad. 
You know, this sounds like a personal situation. Oh, he's dead as shit. No, I mean, like, whatever you need to do, seance, like, write him a letter, then burn it, whatever. It sounds like you have a lot of personal, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. in in his memory, shoot at someone's feet. Mm -hmm. But honestly, it just sounds like you need to work out your fucking daddy issues instead of try to daddy the whole fucking country. I think that really is the core of a lot of this. His dad was a piece of shit. Yeah. And and he's trying to make up for it. Solved. Next case. The moral majority set to work, preparing morality ratings for every member of Congress. See, that's not terrifying. I love to be rated. Mm-hmm. Everybody does. It's like Airbnb, but for Congress. Uh, they funded documentaries attacking homosexuals as degenerates and decrying abortion as murder. And they launched a national voter registration drive aimed at Americans concerned with family values issues. From Banwert's article. Moral majority sprang into action, mobilizing politicians and religious leaders to help support their platform. The movement boasted a wide variety of accomplishments and energy to influence the election. We're going to change the country, Utah Senator Orrin Hatch declared. Ugh, fucking Orrin Hatch. Fucking Orrin Hatch. The moral majority boasted a political war chest worth millions of dollars by the summer of 1980. It opened offices in Washington, D.C., and in just one year, gained 83,000 new addresses for its mailing list. It's Whoa. like the black said in the 1960s, Falwell said, and this time, we're going to win. Oh, my God. Roughly three months before the 1980 election, the moral majority officially announced its support of Ronald Wilson Reagan. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. And that is where we're going to leave off for the episode. In part two, we're going to learn about Jerry Falwell's reaction to the AIDS crisis, the moral majority under Reagan, and just a little bit about how a certain conservative fire brand reacted to 9-11. And we're going to talk about Larry Flint, who's going to be the hero of the next episode. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. But first, Sophia, you have a podcast. That's right. I have a podcast called Private Parts Unknown. Private Parts Unknown. I co-host it with Courtney Kosak. And uh, it's a podcast about love and sexuality around the world. And it's really fun. And soon, my 90 Day Fiance podcast with Miles Gray called 420 Day Fiance is coming out. So watch out for that. I'm going to issue a challenge to yes. the uh, listeners of both of our podcasts, if, if you're a fan of Bastards Pod and Private Parts Unknown, because your podcast is essentially the aural opposite of Jerry Falwell, like condensed into sound waves. Yes. So if you, if you live near Virginia where he's buried, fans of the show, get some speakers. Oh, my God. Find that would be his amazing. grave. Which episode would you want blasted into Jerry Falwell's corpse? Uh, men talking about their experiences with abortion. Nailing it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Play that one directly into Jerry Falwell's grave. You're going to have to go to the Liberty University campus to do it, and they will kick you out. But but please get that video. Yeah. Holy shit. That would really make my life, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, there will, that, you, you will be beloved uh, by all of us if, uh-huh. you, if you succeed in beaming an episode of Private Parts Unknown into Jerry Falwell's into, rotting bones. Yeah, into uh, his ghost. Yeah body which is now in the most subterranean levels of Cancelvania. Yeah. I think that will destroy his ghost. Wow. Yeah. That's not that's the only way you can get rid of ghosts. That's the actually. only way you can get rid of a ghost. You find their 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 opposite, condense it into sound waves and then blast it into their corpse. It's like a silver bullet for vampires. It's like a silver bullet for vampires, but for ghosts. Truth. And you can just download it on your phone using Spotify. Now, you want to plug your social meds so that when fans beam their music into Jerry Falwell's corpse or your podcast into Jerry Falwell's corpse, uh, they can let you know? Yeah, please. I am the Sophia on Twitter and Instagram, S-O-F-I-Y-A. Also, spoilers, he's dead. 
<laughs> I just realized we hadn't gotten there yet. <laughs> I think people know he's dead, but I really appreciate the spoiler alert. It's the episode. I website behindthebastards.com, t-shirts, t-public, other podcast, worst year ever. Behind the Bastards, Bastard Pod at on Twitter, Instagram. Episode done. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.